Our scripture text today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. If you have your own Bibles, you can turn there, you can follow along on the screen. There are also Bibles on the sides of the room at the tables. If you don't have one, you can uh, pick one of those up this morning. Again, our sermon text is 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Good morning. Welcome again to Holy Trinity. I'm John, one of the pastors here. And I just want to say a particular welcome to all of you who... uh, are here for the first time, but also especially um, because the singing can be so intense, uh, if you have doubts when you're here, it can feel like, do I really belong here? <laughs> um, because everyone is, so many people feel like they're just entering into worship. Um, and some of you may have grown up in a religious home and have doubts about whether or not the claims of the Bible are true. So I want to say welcome to you. Also, some of you are from a non-religious background, skeptical, and want to say welcome to you as well. So just want to say that you're welcome here no matter where you are in your, in your spiritual journey. I also would like to say happy birthday to Laura Curtin. There she is. <laughs> She's 22 years old today, so Laura is runs my whole life, so I'm really thankful for her. Yeah. I got a question for you as you get started, and the question is, um, so what I'm doing right now is just setting my timer to see how long I preach for, okay? As a little kid asked uh, his mother when the preacher set his watch down on the pulpit and said, what does that mean? And his mom was like, absolutely nothing, right? So now it doesn't have anything to do with how long that guy's going to speak. Um, I, I just... I got a question for you as you get started, and the question is this, were your parents too tough or too tender? Which one? Or maybe like, doesn't apply. Maybe your parents, uh, maybe your father was emotionally remote, overworked, um, constantly outside of hope. Some of you here this morning have been abandoned by one or both parents emotionally. Um, some have been abused, and I don't say that that lightly. But I ask you that uh, because there's an interesting thesis that was put forth um, a couple years ago in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. You can put that up on the screen. There's a little quote here. You may have seen the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. The subtitle is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And what the quote says, this is Jonathan Haidt and another guy, says, by the standards of our great-grandparents, nearly all of us 
are coddled. Each generation tends to see the one after it as weak, whiny, and lacking in resilience. Admit it, that's how you feel, right? Um, These older generations may have a point, even though these generational changes reflect real and positive changes. The quote goes on and says this, Older generations may see these not as attributes of success, but as flaws that spoil the children. It's true that people need to push against difficulties to grow stronger, yet instead of climbing onto the advantage of our forebears that have brought us reaching yet higher, we have begun to hide behind those advantages as if they might blot out entirely the risks that we face in life. So the question is, are you in, in danger of being coddled by the people that are around you, or are you in danger of being overly challenged? And it's a fair question because parents and churches and communities have to walk the line between gentleness and grit. Too much gentleness and people become too soft. Too much grit and the people break. My claim for today is just pretty simple. It's that the heart that influences others knows how to walk this line. The heart that influences other people knows how to walk the line between toughness and tenderness. Knows when to be tough and when to be tender. And so I'm, to be super simple, I'm just breaking the passage into two parts. Tenderness is verses 14 to 17. And then toughness is verses 18 to 20. One, because it seems like Paul like changes his mind or something when he gets to verse 18. All of a sudden he's like, do you want me to come with a rod or do you want me to come in a spirit of gentleness? But what he's really doing, he's writing from a fatherly heart. And he knows that sometimes it's time to correct the children and sometimes it's time to, to comfort them, bring them in. So we're just going to look at uh, those two qualities this morning. If I had to give you a title, it's this, Fighting for Tenderness. Fighting to be tender, but also like a little snapshot into the window of a a parental heart. What does a parental heart, a healthy parental heart really look like? So that's what we're looking at this morning. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I pray that you bless this time. There's an old book written many years ago. But we look to you now and ask that the Holy Spirit who animated these words the first time they were written would also animate our hearts and minds. We pray that you'd heal those. Begin the process of healing those who have been abandoned. Who have fathers who abdicated. Who have others who have abused them. Give hope to the hopeless this morning. Encourage the faint and joy to the joyless. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what does fighting for tenderness look like? Or there's another term I'll give you, which I'm going to call it restorative love. So there's a certain kind of love of a parent that corrects because they want their child to grow stronger. You You call it restorative love, somebody who's loving but with the intention of helping the individual become the the best person that they could possibly be. Just to get us started, um, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul. It's the first of two letters, but it's actually sort of the the second of four letters because he got a letter from the Corinthians and they asked him a bunch of questions and he wrote this. And then 
after he sent it, they asked him a bunch of other questions, and so he wrote 2 Corinthians. So we only have Paul's correspondence, but this is a reply to some of the issues that were going on in Corinth. One of the issues we've seen is pride, and you'll see that in the second half of the text. Um, there's a kind of arrogance, you could call it urban snobbery, you know, like we live in Corinth, it's one of the best cities in the world, right? So um, this kind of elevation of um, self-importance, uh, there were these very strong Greek speakers that were going around Corinth in that day who were called sophists, uh, they were like just orators, and they were a little bit over the top, think of them as like celebrities our celebrities today, people that everybody feels like, wow, they have fame, and they have power, they have the ability to speak, etc. What was happening is Paul, who historians describe as short, bald, and bow-legged, was being compared to these like celebrity speakers. He's like, I don't match up. But his point comes back to the idea that Jesus doesn't really match up either. Because even though Jesus could have called down power upon the Romans when they were attempting to crucify him, he didn't. He was weak. So he's focusing in on how, how the gospel is a kind of message of weakness. So first, I want to show you um, this idea of tenderness in verses 14 to 17. And, and I'm just making a very simple point, which is that restorative love is tender or restorative familial love is tender. The, the heart that influences others is a heart of love. It's a heart of familial love. Um, it'd be easy to think of the opposite of tenderness as being toughness, and in a sense that's true. But really the opposite of tenderness, if, you're, if it's going to be a negative, is more like abdication. Um, instead of being tender, which takes energy, uh, abdication is the removal of influence. So in our, in our culture today, sometimes we think that what love really looks like is just always being nice, always being kind. Somebody said to me this week, who, who's dealing with alcoholism in her family, really wrestling with this idea of when to be tender and when to be tough. She went the tenderness route first. Did a whole bunch of material things for this individual and then felt like, that wasn't working. It went the toughness route. And then she gave us this phrase this week. She said, it's true what they say, that love never saved an alcoholic. But what that phrase really means is that this kind of tender love never saved an alcoholic. What Paul starts with here is with this idea of total tenderness. So look at verse 14, if you would. Um, and I'm just going to read this. He says, I write these things to you, not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. This is like his tender heart showing through. He's referring to them as a beloved child. And then he says, For you, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. In other words, there, this is familial, tender, parental love that Paul is using here. Now, it's interesting that he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Because if you have the context of, of Corinthians, if you have a Bible, you can flip around in the first couple of chapters, and 
The language that he uses feels very shameful. In fact, in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, but I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In the vernacular, it's like, you guys are a bunch of babies. You know what? You should be mature. You're totally immature. He says, I should have been able to feed you meat, but I just all I could give you was milk. He's striking them and saying, hey, you guys are incredibly immature. He, but now he says, I'm not trying to make you ashamed. And I just want, what, what I'm going to do for a second is just outline this idea of tender, restorative love and do a little contrast. So tender, restorative love uh, has admonishment as its tone and, and not a shame uh, or shame as its tone, right? So what happens with shame, if somebody is trying to shame a person, they're really deconstructing their sense of value and self-worth. But what parents are intended to do, but what parents intend to do is to admonish, which is a great word here, that just means to like gently challenge. Uh, there's a great spot in, uh, some of you have heard of the quote-unquote Proverbs 31 woman, you know, which it describes like what the ideal woman is like at the end of Proverbs, except if you go to the beginning of Proverbs, it's actually a mom talking to her son who's the king. And she's, she's like completely admonishing him. She's saying to him, she says, what am I to do with you, son of my flesh? And she basically nails him for, drinking, like just going off on, on drinking, sleeping around. She's like really coming at him, but she's coming at him with an admonishment not to shame, which like just bring, heaps um, a sense of personal unworth on someone. But she's trying to build him up. The way I sometimes think of it is with, especially with sons, I think, what you have to do is show them there's a crown that they're rising to rather than uh, something, some area that they are failing in. So the, the first characteristic here is admonishment, not shame. That's what restorative love does. It's, it's willing to admonish, but it's not trying to build shame. The second characteristic here of restorative love is that it's familial, not detached. Again, we, we saw this, but how does he address them? He calls them, my beloved children. And obviously, a father who has abandoned his house could possibly come back and say that you're beloved to me. But this is the Apostle Paul. Part of the reason why he says this is because he started the church that they are part of. And so he's, in a way, he like spiritually helped them to be born into the world. And so that's why he can call them his children. You know, sometimes you have heard a mother say before, I brought you into this world. What's the, re- the second part of that? Yeah, I can take you out of Thank you, Lawrence. I can take you out of this world, right? Uh, the, the, that's the way this passage works a little bit. It's like Paul in, in the, these verses is like, I brought you into this world. And the second half is like, and I can take you out of this world, all right? So uh, a second c- characteristic of tender restorative love here is that it's f- familial, not detached. It's engaged. You've seen the, um, the Incredibles. And there's that moment in which the mother's like, it's time to engage, Bob. It's time to engage. That is the tendency of, of all overweight fathers is like to just disengage or something, all right? Um, but love engages. Love wants to shape 
the character of the other into a healthy individual, and and for Christians, into the image of Jesus. So that's what Paul is doing here. The, the, the simple contrast here is between a father and someone who's outside the family. Look, again, look at the verse 14 to 15. It says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And the difference between the quote-unquote countless guides and the many fathers is, um, if you go back into the historical context, we don't actually really have this role in our culture today, but in, Greek, in the Greek culture there was... Uh, a kind of, it's, it's like the word is like pedagogues, and it's a specific role, often a servant or a slave, whose job it was to walk the kids to school or take the children to school. The closest thing we have like today is a bus driver, right? <laughs> they take the kid to school. Or a crossing guard. Or the idea, like a babysitter. Have you ever noticed, like babysitters always want to get paid? What is that? Like, why do they always feel like they're entitled to get paid for something, right? Parents never feel like that. Parents feel like they're lighting their money on fire and just letting it go into the world, right? That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, yeah, you've had some bus drivers in your life, but all they do is drop you off. And you've had some babysitters, but they go home at night. Paul's saying, I'm up all night I was the one who nursed you. I'm the one who brought you into this world. But his goal really is that they could become like Christ. I just want you to notice the words in this passage that it's not just that he's their father. Look at what it says. Verse 15 says, you have, you have countless guides, but you do not have many fathers. And then he says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he really wants them to be is in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to pause for a moment. I've touched on this briefly, but I just want to recognize that some of you come from churches where you have felt abandoned by the leadership. That there are leaders who have made decisions, sometimes based on immaturity, but have made decisions that have really abandoned you. I just want to recognize that. Because the Apostle Paul is speaking here as someone who's really invested, but this is in some ways uncommon in our culture today. And some of you have been abandoned by your own fathers, and I just want to say for that, that I'm sorry that you have gone through that. And some of you have lived in a world of shame and are still, at 27 years old, 38 years old, trying to break from that shame. We didn't, we're not going to sing this today, but you, some of you know that song that talks about God being a good, good father. That's who he is. That's who he is. What Paul is trying to do is let the love of the good, good father speak to the hearts of this church that is, has become immature. And is really hurting itself with its immaturity. Some of you have come from families that were totally erratic or detached, been abandoned or abused. I've heard a thousand stories of what they say you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of the night 
and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. And what Paul is doing here is trying to tenderly persuade some immature Christians who are going astray with the world that the pursuing love of the Father still has a plan for them to be loved. His paternal love is shaped by God's eternal love. Restorative love that's tender is focuses on admonishment, not shame. It's familial, not detached. And then lastly, uh, it brings siblings. It, it, imitation is a way of life. If you think of, of a kind of non-literate culture, uh, the Greek culture, of course, was very literate, but not as literate as our culture is in the sense that you didn't have access to books and things like that. So if you really wanted to know how to follow Jesus, the best way to do it was to see someone who loved Jesus and model your life after them. Someone who was willing to sacrifice the way Jesus sacrificed. Someone who was willing to go to the margins and bring people in. Someone who is willing to not look at the outside, but to look at the inside of someone's heart. So that's why Paul says, he says, I sent Timothy to you as an imitator of who Jesus is so that you could basically to sort of win them back. He says, verse, this is verse 15, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. It's possible in the church to say that it's only what you believe, it's not how you live that makes you a Christian. And what Paul is saying is, no, there's a way that the followers of Jesus Christ are to live, which is to recognize that God is the eternal creator, that God is what we call the redeemer of us, and that he's the ultimate one. Another spot Paul says, understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. So think for a second about Chicago politicians, and then hear these words, words again. Lovers of self, lovers of money. I don't mean to pick them out. I just did, though. Uh, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient. This is what our culture is like. And then Paul says, but you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. Very few of us are, would be willing to say, hey, imitate me, right? But what he's really saying is imitate me as I imitate Jesus, which means wherever Paul doesn't imitate Jesus, don't imitate him. Wherever he does imitate Jesus, imitate him. But it helps to have a living... So, imitate the yopes as they imitate Jesus. Imitate the Fentons as they imitate Jesus. I know you're nervous that my eye is coming over towards you. Imitate the St. Aubins as they imitate Jesus. That's what Paul is saying is, I sent you a living example of how you should live your life. So, part of what each of us needs is somebody else to look to and say, they're not perfect, but I can tell that those people want Jesus to be their king and want to follow him. Imitate Lawrence as Lawrence follows Jesus. 
Some of you have trauma because your father was remote or overworked or disinterested or uninvolved or unhelpful or overcritical or demeaning. God is saying, come to a good, good father and be restored by his tenderness. I want to ask you to help create a culture at Holy Trinity downtown that is tender, like the Father's tenderness. Be a spiritual mother or spiritual father to someone else. And parents, you have a high and noble calling. Those of you who are still parents now, may God give you the strength to invest with tears and sleepless nights, not for shame, but for admonishment. So, restorative love that's tender. Now we got restorative love that is tough. And that's what I want to focus on in the next couple of minutes. Jonathan Haidt, also in uh, the, the Coddling of the American Mind, has this quote. There's an old saying, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Now, whoever wrote that did not live in Chicago, where, where we invented the pothole. We're, down, we're driving down some street the other day. I think it was Josh would be. It was like, th- like this is the most pothole-infested road that there possibly is, right? And that's what life is like. So you can either adjust the axles of your vehicle for the road, or you can fix the road. What Paul is saying, what this author is saying, is that you have to prepare your kids. You have to prepare for the tough road that is ahead. Similar way, see the farmer and his sons are out there in the field working, planting corn, harvesting corn. Somebody comes along and they're like, man, why are you you having your sons do that work? Right? You could hire someone. The farmer says, because I'm not raising corn. I'm raising sons. So sometimes you got to be tough. And maybe in our culture today, there's not enough toughness to love, but to love with toughness. The culture of the kingdom of God has both a soft heart and a stiffness of spine. And restorative love that is, that is tough has to go alongside restorative love that is tender. Listen to the change in tone. Some of you are arrogant as though I was not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Do you notice the change in tone? For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of tenderness? Here's the second aspect of a heart that influences It's not just soft enough to admonish, it's also tough enough to correct. Like when you see someone going in the wrong way, do you actually care about them enough to say, some of your behavior is troubling to me? The way that you responded in that meeting, I don't think that that was the way that you should have responded. I just want to talk to you, not because I want to get on your case, but just because I actually care about you. The question as it relates to parenting is who's in charge of the home? Because when the kids get in charge of the home, you're in trouble. When the five-year-olds are in charge or the 18-year-olds are in charge, you're in trouble. Now, if they're 72 and the parents are 92, then you're in a good, good spot, okay? 
When emotions are in charge of the home, you're in trouble. Paul says in, in, in Ephesians, be angry, like you're going to be angry, but do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger, which means that when you're angry as a parent, it's time, then you do need to correct, but it's probably not the right time to correct. Let your anger subside a little bit, and then correct. But use words of correction. Channel your love into restorative love. Channel your anger into restorative love that corrects. The kids can't run the home any more than the immature or the rebellious can run the church. And that's the point Paul's making. Because the people that were running the church in Corinth were part of a sexualized urban culture that said anything goes, including a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law. You're like, that, yeah, that's probably out of bounds. Probably wouldn't do that. It's more than that, though. This church was like, that's awesome. They thought it was great. <laughs> that's what 5.1, the next chapter, verse 1 says. It's actually reported that there's a kind of sexual immorality of you and a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. But a man has his father's wife. And then he says, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn. That's the arrogance that he's come to take down. So it doesn't just break his heart that they're immature. It breaks his heart that the immaturity is marked with arrogance. It's like, I got to take that out. Arrogance is having pride in your foolishness, your foolish way of living. And that's, in some ways, I was just reading uh, a little bit from uh, J.I. Packer. He has a study on the Puritans. And uh, he was comparing, he was saying, you know, the Puritans have a bad name from the beginning. Their name has been strewn through the mud. But in a way, they're like spiritual giants. And then he says, compared to them, we're all spiritual dwarfs. And uh, he, goes, he goes on to quote an American who says that, his, his, the way that he thinks about North American spirituality is it's incredibly shallow, incredibly manipulative, incredibly self-absorbed. And what Paul is doing is trying to uproot their shallowness and say, let's go deep. And he's willing to be tough in order to do that. Immaturity and leadership leads to immorality in the church. If the leadership is immature, immorality is going to come in. And that's, the, that's what Paul is, is pointing out. We live in a culture that's cavalier about sexual immorality. It's literally proud. I just want you to think for a second about your favorite teacher that you had growing up. You're going to have to raise your hand. Raise your hand if that teacher was tough. Some of you are scared to raise your hand. Raise your hand if the teacher was tender. Raise your hand if the teacher was tough one more time. Maybe a little of both. I can't count. I remember the, the teacher that I had that I remember, one of my favorite teachers, Miss Fitch, made us memorize all the prepositions aboard, above, about, after, against, along, among, around, at, before, before, behind, below, beneath, beside, between, beyond, by. That was a long time ago. But she was so strict. And sometimes strictness produces growth. 
So parents have to be strict. And we need, with each other, to love each other as spiritual siblings enough to challenge each other to keep growing. It's not just tenderness that is a sign of love. Paul is training the church here. He says the kingdom of God is not about words. It's about God's power to change lives. And this may be foreign to, to if, you're, if you are a skeptic or a doubter, this may be foreign to you. But for the Apostle Paul, the power lay in the cross. That's actually what he's coming back to here is the cross. And you can think about the cross for a second, okay? Here's this place where Jesus was crucified. What did it take for him to be willing to go there? Toughness or tenderness? Yeah, it took a tenderness to be willing to love you and me enough to be crucified. But did it take toughness? Absolutely. In excruciating pain to be hanging on the cross. Jesus had the strength of spine, but the softness of heart to love you and to love me. That's restorative love on the cross. Let me just close with a couple applications. Um, I just want to challenge you to be willing to admonish. Number one, as we close, be willing to admonish somebody else, okay? Uh, Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love. Sometimes people want to speak the truth and they're a jerk, and sometimes they want to be loving and not speak the truth, but speak the truth in love, be willing to admonish others. Secondly, keep your eyes on those whose faith is worthy of imitating. You're going to fall. You're going to stumble. But have just a couple other people around you that you say, yeah, but when I look at their lives, I can tell that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he has forgiven someone and has forgiven me. And then third, ask God if your heart is too hard to give you a heart of tenderness. I think urbanness can produce hardness sometimes. Because <laughs> there's so many bad drivers out there, you know? So many rude people out there. Just teasing. But it's easy to get a hard heart when you live in the city, I think. So maybe you need some tenderness. Are there ways in which the post-Christian culture has hardened you? But also ask God to give you toughness. Maybe you're too soft. Maybe you have something you're supposed to say to someone. And you've known it for a while, but you haven't been able to say it. Isn't that nice to have the train going by over there? Lastly, become a spiritual mother to someone. One of the problems with this church, this congregation, is y'all too young. There's, only, there's not that many gray hairs among us. But you are older than someone else, okay? So seek out someone who's a little younger that you can just invest in a little bit to become a spiritual mother or father to them. The heart that influences others is a heart of love. It's tough enough to correct, and it's tender enough to admonish. So stay engaged, because all of us need a spiritual family around us. We're going to sing about God's love being rich and pure, and measureless and strong. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven,
Forgive me for the ways I have fallen short as a father. Forgive me of the ways I have fallen short as a spiritual father. And weave within us, Lord, weave within our hearts by Your Spirit a little more tenderness and a little more toughness so that we might look a little more like Jesus and like Your love. Tough enough to die, tender enough to forgive. We thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.